Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. If you talk about farming, you've got a low-margin, capital-intensive business that's very risky. That's not something that investors typically salivate over. But on the other hand, it seems like there's this mismatch because there's this huge demand and desire for local food. How do you make a living on a small, hyper-locally-minded farm? Can investors do good by small farmers and do well for themselves? Where does micro-lending fit into the food shed? Here with Seed Capital. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the Virginia Foundation for Public Media and the Community Idea Stations. Using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. Visit ideastations.org. And by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice, fiduciaries for families, at evoadvisors.com. Joining me in studio, Hunter Hopcroft, formerly of Harvest, and J.M. Stock. He is special project manager at Elwoods, co-founder of Slow Money Central VA, a micro lender to farms. He's also snagging his MBA at UVA. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I'm surprised you had time for this. And, of course, Erica Helen, co-founder of Free Union Grass Farm, a diversified, hyper-local livestock farm producing beef, chicken, pork, duck, and eggs to Charlottesville and Richmond. How are you? I'm super, thanks. Wow, you are like <laughs> legit agricultural. That's what they tell me. <laughs> what is it like to come to the big city? Oh, uh, I feel just like a little rural country girl in the big wide world. <laughs> are you from Virginia? I mean, how how did you get about into to farming? How did that become a career? Um, well, no, I'm not from Virginia. I'm actually from Oklahoma, but that didn't draw me to farming actually at all. I went to college in North Carolina at a little liberal arts school called Warren Wilson College that had a working farm and a really impressive environmental studies department. And I worked on the garden crew there and just got really excited about agriculture um, in terms of like, you know, what can I do as, you know, a young, confused pseudo hippie to solve the environmental crisis? And it seemed like food was the most direct and useful way to do that. So. I'm reminded of that famous line from Of Mice and Men, living off the fat of the land. Mm, mm-hmm. It's a fantasy that we all have to kind of close the loop and be self-sustaining and hyper-local. And, you know, this term that I've been kicking around with Hunter here is the the local food shed. We talk about the watershed. Uh, but we take for granted now in this day and age, I mean, as a, as a parent, that uh, it's so easy to get your mitts on a Haas avocado year-round, something that we just didn't have 30 years ago growing up. An avocado was such an exotic thing. And now there's this flashback movement to procuring things locally, sustaining local farmers, maybe uh, diminishing the conagras of the world who are kind of mowing down everything in big food and, and going back to our roots, as it were. Certainly, yeah. So here's the thing. The interesting thing is everybody says that that, look, farmland is having a boom over the past 20 years, right? Farmland prices have done very well. There was a concurrent commodities boom. Countries like China are becoming more voracious in their demands for grains, in their imports from the United States, uh, the desire for beef, uh, and and, and all the follow-on effects that the way this affects the likes of Brazil and Argentina and the farm belt here in the United States. So were you coming into this industry just as that was picking up and everybody was talking about farming? I got to say no, um, because I feel like even though I am a farm and I'm a food producer, 
I feel that my specific kind of industry is incredibly far removed from the kind you're referring to. I mean, I don't have a lot of insight about large-scale land prices. Um, it doesn't really – there isn't a whole lot of overlap between that kind of production and mine, um, with the exception of uh, local Virginia grain producers because we do use a locally produced ration. But for my purposes, it was more a means of, you know, how do we mitigate the effects of climate change? How do we produce something valuable on a really small scale while regenerating the land where we can? Um, but, you know, the fact that farming is potentially a booming industry is not um, by any means what drew me to it. And it's, I think, taken some time to uh, to make a profitable model in the way that we have. Illustrate for our listeners, I mean, the very obverse or counterfactual of what you do. Let's say a McDonald's. How does a McDonald's procure all that ground beef, all those potatoes? What What is the – illustrate for us something that is decidedly industrial and automatized and, and um, driven down to the, the, the you know five-second deficiency and the very last penny. I mean, I think what you're talking about there is scale. And um, in order to produce – or to procure large quantities of one particular cut, you know, if it's ground beef, for example, you need to be working with a massive operation that can work, you know, to be getting ground beef into your hands at locations all over the country and the world, like 24-7. Um, that's, that's a completely different endeavor. And so you need to be working with a large-scale system of farms that are getting that to you wherever you are all the time. And that's really far removed from our model, which is to work on a very small scale, intentionally small, um, get things by the cut on a full animal, uh, in a full animal way into producers' hands and educate them about all the different and varied cuts versus just selecting one thing and getting it over and over and over again. And it's kind of the thing where you know the restaurant owner or the chef intimately and they would call you out on the menu. I mean, I wouldn't say intimately, but <laughs> yes, we, we have a relationship with them. <laughs> So illustrate that for me. What kind of what kind of relationship? Or is it a push or pull thing? Do they reach out to you? Do you market to them? Mm -hmm. Do they come and tour the place and say, wow, I, li I like this kind of on the hoof? Yeah, it's a little bit of all of that. And actually, it's really fun. I do most of the, you know, reaching out to chefs and maintaining those relationships in terms of marketing and wholesaling. Um, and actually, a good contact of ours at JM Stock, Alex, I've been like text buddies with for the last, you know, four years. And our banter uh, every Monday, essentially, is when I reach out to him for Wednesday delivery. And we, you know, it's like a strange mixture of emojis and like, yo, what you need this week. Just um, kind of a, a familiarity that comes with having worked with someone for a long time, having walked into their shop, um, literally brought them the product that I slaughtered earlier in the week and, uh, you know, picked the feathers out of. Um, and yeah, and sometimes it involves just cold calling someone and being like, hey, you know, I'm Erica. I'm with Free New Grass Farm. Maybe you haven't heard of us, but I checked out your menu and it looked like there was a way that we could fit really well with you. And like, would you be interested in, in getting some product? Um, so, yeah, it's a variety of things. There's a little bit less familiarity with some of our accounts than others, but um, Jamstock's a great example. Hunter Hopcroft, you occupy both worlds of, of high finance. You've been in portfolio management before. You know net present value. You know about farm values. You won't look at me as freakishly as um, farmer Erica will when I talk about, you know, economics of the farm and scale and whatnot. But what's interesting and what sparked this episode is the fact that you see in the Venn diagram a kind of convergence of this. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be agrarian America versus capitalist America, that there is – a rarefied space where you could do well and do good. 
Yeah, and I wish I had come to this world uh, as early as Erica did. I, I got here in sort of a roundabout way when I was still working in portfolio management. This is back in late 2013. Uh, GMO, Jeremy Grantham, came out with a research report about agriculture. And you got to love that the, that the firm is called GMO. I, know, I give them just, a lot of grief about that. <laughs> I know. I gotta, they, they need a serious rebrand now. Uh, yeah. Came out with a, a research article about phosphorus, and that was sort of the first time agriculture as an industry, as something to think about, had ever crossed in front of my field of vision. I started thinking about it really differently. Um, it, it's interesting to wonder if these things happen like this or you put them together uh, in your mind this way. But I was interviewing for a job in Los Angeles, and I had spent you know about two or three months out there, and there's a store in Echo Park called Cookbook, which honestly is not much bigger than this studio, and they sell all local produce, vegetables, meat, dairy. Um, and I had never seen anything like it before. And I spent probably an hour in this little 700-square-foot store, and all these connections started happening in my mind. It, it, looking back, it's ironic that I was on a team responsible for managing hundreds of millions of dollars with no real concept of commerce until I was in that store. And you saw farmers dropping off their product for sale, consumers coming in, and you sort of saw how the whole system worked together there. Um, and so on one of my cross-country flights, I started sketching out plans for a sort of a small neighborhood market. And to me, it was really just going to be an experiment, uh, sort of. I was ready to leave finance. I was ready to try something entrepreneurial. And I had been having these thoughts about agriculture and small food rolling around in my head. I thought, well, let's see if this can work. Hmm. I see a stat from the USDA, um, and this is a bit dated. It said average farm real estate values grew from $1,483 per acre in the year 2000 to nearly $3,100 in uh, 2015. Cropland appreciated faster than pasture land. Now, that kind of does, to my mind, it, it roughly, I mean, we've had a commodities boom. You've seen a lot of issues with oil going to $140 and people suddenly repurposing grain for fuel and you saw an enormous rush to you know switch grass and cellulosic ethanol and people snapping up uh, farmland um, and, and this idea of scarcity and investors from around the world wanting something like Jeremy Grantham. I remember meeting with him in 2000 uh, when I was covering investing and he said, you need to buy timberland and farmland. And so it has had a spectacular 20 years. Uh, but that kind of cuts both ways because if you're a farmer, if you're a person looking to get into it, um, the costs of the startup are enormous. It's prohibitive. Yeah, I mean, you, you really have two options, which is um, to go sort of the, the route of Erica and be very bootstrapped and entrepreneurial. Um, or your other option is, quite frankly, something more akin to indentured servitude where you're taking on massive amounts of debt. Um, usually debt partially supplied by a major food producer to sort of help you quickly get up to a scale that makes sense for their business. You, you mentioned um, that it's all about scale and efficiencies, and and I think that's part of the sort of myth of the industrial food system is that it's that they've they've got it down to such a science that it's so cheap to produce, but. The reality is it's, it's mostly just highly subsidized uh, and that those costs that you're paying for the food are not 
a reflection necessarily of some great efficient model they've uncovered, but more the effect of, you know, a huge system of incentives and subsidies to get the prices. I, th- I think about this a lot, actually, when I venture into a Walmart, and I hope this isn't a diversion, and please feel free to chime in. And you see at the checkout line, and I challenge any listener, any publication, any investigative journalist to unpack this. You see one of those mini bags of Lay's potato chips that sells for 25 cents at a Walmart. What kind of subsidy went into that? What kind of price controls went into that? What kind of agricultural policy? All of that stuff to make it so that a multinational corporation like PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, can profitably sell a couple of chips for 25 cents at the checkout line at Walmart, which then adds to whole other externalities if you talk about the obesity crisis. And I've struggled with this. I've struggled with the fact that a Big Mac in real terms has fallen in price over 20, 25 years, where we know that food prices have gone up. Do you ever wonder about this? Do you ever wonder, Farmer Erica, if if everything is just stacked up against you to go up against Big Ag? Um, I think it's a real endeavor to educate people because we think about what you're talking about all the time, too. And I mean, I think, you know, with what you were saying in terms of externalities, you know, the idea that food is actually cheap is incredibly false because aside from all the subsidies, you're also dealing with the environmental costs. And I think that's one way where, you know, sort of the market um, and capitalism can get interested in the kind of farming we do in terms of ecosystem services, because I think... You know, we produce meat, but the primary thing that we are doing is b- building soil and sequestering carbon and and creating soil that keeps water in place when it rains 90 inches in Virginia in a year when it's normally supposed to rain 30 inches. Because that's where, you know, there are real costs to the community. It's like, oh, God, we have to actually maybe install new gutters and new sewers, and that starts costing a city money. And so when you are a farm that's producing, you know, a product that's pretty profitable on a small scale, that's one thing. But I think the more important work we're doing is like providing something valuable to the ecosystem and to the environment. Walk me back to you leaving North Carolina and deciding to go headlong into farming. What was the opportunity? Uh, What was the cost? Um, If you had to sit around with your partner and your friends and sketch this out, uh, what is it like to be a new farmer and to face the opportunity and the hurdle, the, the enormous scale you have to climb? Um, well, I think the first step is um, educating yourself and doing a variety of internships, which I did, um, one of which was at uh, Polyface Farm in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, um, which is pretty well known in my field. And uh, it's owned by Joel Salatin uh, and uh, managed by him and his son, Daniel. Uh, they do incredible work in terms of actually producing food and also educating people the world over about what it means to be a regenerative pasture-based farmer. Um, And so, you know, I had caught wind of uh, Polyface when I was in college, and um, I was doing an internship back in Oklahoma that ended up being a little more office-oriented than I wanted. And how I do you, just, well, I'm sorry. How do you show up and get an internship on a farm? Like, hey, you call you them on me, the phone and just ask very nicely. Do you like, give me room and board. I will. Uh, I'll was, learn how to butcher. I don't understand it. You, uh, yeah, you essentially just reach out to them in the way you would, you know, any kind of job, and uh, hype yourself a little bit. Um, what they wanted there, and I think it's really valuable, is they think it's okay if you're just completely green. Um, you don't have a lot of experience because it means that they can shape you, teach you their methods, uh, shape you in you know, the way that their landscape needs um, and, you know, sweet talk you into 
slaughtering 30,000 chickens in one season. <laughs> so you become an expert in small things pretty quickly. I didn't know all the things I wanted to know, but I think at that point after working at Polyface, I, I had enough fluency in one part of the production that I felt like, okay, at the very least, this isn't, uh, you know, this is a product chicken that I can jump into. I know I can produce it. I know I can sell it. In the meantime, that'll give me a little bit of cash flow to kind of figure out these other endeavors like cattle um, and and pigs. And just, you know, those are bigger and more expensive industries to get into, um, a little bit riskier and a little bit more intimidating as like a 120-pound woman to be like, okay, we're just going to start working So cattle. why ultimately <laughs> livestock? I mean, it's it's smelly. The, the waste issue is there. I mean, I'm thinking um, bok choy versus livestock. Uh, well, it doesn't or, have to be smelly, and it doesn't have to um, involve as much waste in the terms that you're thinking. I'm thinking of the big Smithfield, right. you know, ADM, ConAgra-type farms, and everybody in North Carolina, they say infamously you pass by a hog mm-hmm. area yeah. and the cesspools and whatnot. There is a way to make it regenerative and not stink? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's the, a very key distinction between those sorts of farms and mine, which is that in that model – the manure, the excrement is a waste product. For me, it's an asset. And I get the animals to put it where I want it um, so I don't have to. And they do it in such a way that actually benefits the landscape. So for me, why livestock? I mean, you know, it's the same reason people like to look at pictures of cute baby animals on Instagram. You know, there's something very meaningful about interacting with an animal um, that frankly, I mean, I like vegetables. I should probably eat more of them. But working with livestock just felt very exciting. Um, and yeah, something I wanted to But pursue. this is fascinating in terms of manure and waste capture and everything else like that. You are truly treating it as an asset. It's not just an area with slats going into a retrieving pond. Well, I mean, correct. how do you, yeah. how, how does that work? Then this gets back to our cost discussion a little bit. There's a great Robert Kennedy quote that I won't nearly do justice about how our calculation of GDP includes a lot of things we're not really proud of. When those pork cesspools overflow and someone has to come and do the environmental remediation, that's a that's a plus mark on GDP. Uh, it's not something that's going to show up in your pork prices, but it's something that shows up to us as economic growth, but it's not something we're particularly proud of. It's economic you know? growth and not an externality? Well, it is. I mean, there, it's uh, there's been you know services rendered and people paid for it. Again, it's not something we're particularly proud of as a community, but it shows up as a you know plus whatever point oh oh two percent in GDP for that area. Um, and those are the things that aren't going to get captured in that bag of chips or price of mm-hmm. a Big Mac. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are agging out with slow money, living off the fat of the land with Erica Helen. She's co-founder of Free Union Grass Farms. It's a diversified, hyperlocal livestock farm uh, outside of Charlottesville and Hunter Hopcroft. He is special project manager at Elwoods, formerly of Harvest and JM Stock, but importantly, co-founder of Slow Money Central VA, which is a micro lender to farms. Uh, continue on this with me. So this must necessarily all you know, part of the expression, lard up your cost basis. I mean, you are ultimately going to restaurants and saying, look, I have a soulful story. I know my, I, 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 I treat my land as an asset. I'm coming here and looking at you in the whites of the eyes, uh, making a case. You're going to tell the story of my farm. I'm going to tell the story of your restaurant. We're going to help each other as hyper-local entrepreneurs. But they must know what the price is of the wholesale Mm-hmm. <laughs> multinational that's going to be able to come in. Yeah, and that uh, I think is tricky because that makes my 
portion of, uh, you know, my Monday calling of chefs kind of, you know, it's a necessity because I have to beat out the guy who's cold calling them like two or three times a week um, saying, you know, what are you paying now? I can beat it. Um, there are full-time people who are employed to do that work at large organizations, um, whereas me, I'm just fitting it in whenever I can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the chefs, you know, they do the best they can, and we really understand that, like, you know, it's also their job to provide an affordable meal for people um, while, you know, asking their servers to know where it's from, get that right, um, know how frequently they have it on the menu, and also be able to explain to the person that's dining with them why it's worth the extra cost. Um, and that's a lot of education that goes down the line that we just have to kind of send our product out in the world and hope it's, you know, hope farmer, that message farmer is getting Erica, across. Farmer uh, Erica, grass-fed, overrated, underrated, correctly rated? <laughs> Uh, it depends on the context. Um, grass-fed is specific to cattle um, who are herbivores. All of our animals eat grass, and that's the one thing that we – that's the reason we're called Free Union Grass Farm is because we love that they have all that in common. Um, but with cattle um, herbivores, you do want them to eat a 100 percent grass-fed diet in terms of what is the most healthful thing for them and in turn what is the most healthful thing for you as the eater. Um, I think sometimes grass-fed gets a bad rap. That has a lot to do with um, people's familiarity with how beef should taste. You know, a lot of folks who are getting that burger at McDonald's want it to just be fatty and mild. They don't necessarily want a gamey, you know, nuanced piece of meat. And I think gamey even gets a little bit of a bad rap. I want my beef to taste like beef. I want to know I'm eating beef versus just this sort of benign umami I want to know what beef is. I want you to show me. How shall I do that? <laughs> I, I want to know because I, there's a, there was a place in New York near the old Bloomberg building called BRGR and they were big on selling grass-fed beef. And I think in 2010, 2011, they're like, you could actually eat a hamburger at this place and it approximates the protein and omega-3 profile of salmon. I was like, no way. <laughs> they're like, way. I mean, what really uh, – what affects the marbling is you give them all sorts of corn and corn, as you know, is a very polarizing mm. – you know, feedstock and agriculture and a feed, and and a lot worse. I mean, uh, some cows feed on 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 chicken waste and and mm -hmm. who knows what else. Yeah, right. What goes into provisioning all of that grass for your animals um, sustainably and affordably? Provisioning. Well, I mean, I think anytime you're dealing with livestock, especially large uh, mammals, you need a lot of acreage. Um, and the way we've been able to. You guys are thirteen acres. <laughs> So there's 13 acres of family land, um, but we're grazing on a little over 250. And so the point of that is that the animals are never in one place for very long. Um, so you can't just give them 250 acres and let them have the whole thing. Um, and we couldn't even do that because it's not all right next door to one another. The way you provision that feed is by constantly managing how much they get at one time, um, how that's affected by weather and seasonality. And then once they've grazed it at the right level of growth, getting them out of there and getting them onto a new piece of ground um, so that they don't actually cycle back to that same piece for at least a couple months. Mm. Um, if you give it all to them at one time, I can almost guarantee you it won't be enough to feed them. And we've seen that time and again with new satellite operations we've set up, one of which was about 80 acres. Uh, when I first checked out the piece of property, I drove over the whole thing hills and all in my Subaru Outback because the turf was like little more than a putting green. Um, and it was really grim and it had just been continuously grazed by a farmer who just let his cows out and said, you know, fend for yourselves. Now that we've been rotationally grazing on it for a couple years, I, I dare not drive a 
vehicle with that low Wait, clearance. so that, you mean that topsoil has been eroded through? Absolutely. Well, so rotational doing, grazing helps you stagger the depletion of it and the fertilization? Absolutely. So what rotational grazing does is it allows the cows to graze the grass to a certain height, and then it gets them off before they would go back to that same piece of grass. Um, and so that means cows, you know, ideally shouldn't graze it much further down than like three to six inches, depending on the season. If you let them stay there, they will just keep beating it down. Um, and the grass just can't bounce back. It gets and, stunted. And I it has hate shallow to be annoying, roots. but I, I, this is fascinating to me. All of the fertilizer is sourced internally? Yes, we do not fertilize. So, But the cow manure is amend. repurposed into the soil? Absolutely, yeah. And then we use a complementary species, chickens, to follow the cows and help spread out the cow patties a little bit because they can be a little clumpy. And their instinct to do that is that flies come, you know, lay eggs in the cow patty. The chickens want to go through and seek out the larva because they are omnivores. They love that animal protein. And then they spread it all out so that but by the time the cows come through again, it's not so nitrogen rich in that one particular spot that they won't graze. So that helps ensure really even grazing across the stand. Before I walk out with the micro lender, <laughs> I got to ask you, Farmer Erica, what about methane capture? We hear all of these terrible things, whether you're a big farm or a small farm, that cows can't help but belch and other things and chickens and you give them all of this this feed and the place is going to reek and mm -hmm. methane is so destructive how many more times than you know other greenhouse gases how do you close that loop or could you possibly tap it to run the facilities on the farm um well that's a really fantastic question and that's one why i, I get love paid to the talk big about boss yeah you nailed it um the first thing i'll say is that once again our farm is very different and very separate from those other kinds of farms and industries so um, the important thing is to realize that a lot of those studies are being done on one kind of farm, and that's a big feedlot operation. So what they're gauging is different than what I'm doing. Um, but there's a really cool organization called the Savory Institute. Alan Savory uh, just been kind of a pioneer in terms of understanding the benefit of, you know, large herbivores on the landscape. And um, there was a really incredible study that was just released um, on a, from a ranch out west where they found that there actually is some evidence to support that a, an operation like mine, which they refer to as adaptive grazing, um, can be a higher producer of methane, but that the, the way the soil is managed and the grass is grown um, actually sequesters more carbon that it completely mitigates that extra emission. And in fact, like helps cut it down completely, which is exciting stuff to learn that, like, in some ways, what you're saying is correct, but what we're also doing is actively sequestering not just the emissions the cows are producing, but carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and at this, you know, while we're doing it, we have no, you know, limiting waste products like a slurry pit of manure. We have cows that are 100% grass-fed that are raised the way they should be. We have a more healthful product for the consumer, and we have a profitable small local industry to boot. Now, before I wonk out with Hunter Hopcroft, aspiring agricultural, small, small agriculture micro lender, I would like to coin for the world, um, I would like to nickname you and I would like you to assume the handle. Your name is Hunter Hopcroft. We're going to go with Microcroft. <laughs> Do you like that? <laughs> so now that I've declared it, nobody else can pounce on it. We're going to rest back the Twitter I'll, handle. I'll just wait for the cease and desist from Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Microcroft. Hey, Microcroft, um, I am fascinated by this. You, true or false, you were at PIMCO in a past life. Almost. That's what I was interviewing in Los Angeles for. Um, and I was very close to getting that job and, and moving out there. Um, this is back in 
2013, money was going out the door at Pimco pretty quickly, and I they went on a they went on a hiring freeze, and it was just right at the point of time when I was getting to a point of saying I need to do something a little bit more tangible, and it kind of comes back to that cookbook experience of seeing farmers come into a store, drop off their goods, consumers come in and pay for it. That I decided to make a go of that and and wrote a business plan again, kind of as an experiment, and and sort of hit a series of green lights. Um, and opened up a small microgrocer. Um, unlike Erica, I did so with almost no experience and was quickly made aware of my naivety in, in terms of local food and the local food system. I mean, there's a, the, a an old joke in this world is it used to not be called organic farming. It was just called farming. And the local food system is a little bit the same way. This part of our economy that used to be major source of employment and all food was local food has gone away. And now if you're working in it, um, one of the things that's kind of thrilling but also very frustrating about it is if you figure something out, you're the guy that figured it out, you know, of how to make it work. You're not getting plugged into any kind of system. You, t- you talk about manufacturers and distributors and there there isn't that. It's people like me or, or Alex at Stock texting Erica and saying, do you have any duck when are you coming this way? It's a it's a relationship. It's a network based business. It's a kibbutz. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And coming from a finance background and thinking of the world in sort of economic terms, there's a desire to want to make it more efficient without just replicating the ills of the industrial food system. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to work towards. This great awareness campaign of local food has registered. The restaurants are there. The consumers are there. What hasn't really kept up is the sort of supply and business development side to meet that demand. Um, and in my opinion, it's just a blind spot of sort of finance. I mean, if you talk about farming, you've got a uh, low margin uh, capital intensive business that's very risky because of what that's not something that investors typically salivate over. Um, but on the other hand, it seems like there's this mismatch because there's this huge demand and desire for local food. Talk to me specifically if I, you know, if I'm looking at farming as a kind of a PE ratio or dividend yield thing, and I know it's not neatly analogous, but we can indeed walk out on this. If I look at a plot of land is an investment and the fertility of the land and the yield and whatnot. Is it safe to say that, for example, the the livestock I can produce on it or the mushrooms I can pluck or the timber I can chop down is the income versus uh, the land itself, the stability of that as a, as a placeholder for my dollars and potential capital appreciation, as we discussed earlier, where there's been a boom in farmland prices? Is that a quick and dirty way of looking at it? A little bit. I mean... I think this is where the sustainability word and that conversation comes in. Sustainability essentially means not going backwards. You're sort of doing no harm. I think the types of farming that we're interested in or that we see the biggest, or I'll say the lowest PE ratio but the highest potential is things that are truly regenerative where the longer uh, Erica is on a piece of land, that land is literally banking value into the soil through the organic base that it's building and the nutrients that it's, um, you know, capturing in that soil that previously weren't there. Now, I need you guys to stress regenerative when you say it or else Mm -hmm. it's going to sound degenerative. (laughs) But then, no, break that out furthermore for me. I mean, 
there are, because you're 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 still tug of warring with the people who are coming in and paying prohibitive amounts for the farmland as speculators as I'm going to ride this it's going to go up 10% a year and not have a drawdown for 25 years I think that was the stat that that Meb Faber he's a UVA grad put out is like what is the one asset that has not had a drawdown that's had like a spectacular 20 year run that is prohibitive to a person like farmer Erica who wants to come in and be regenerative and be sustainable and tease out the best of that land for the long term. I, I think there's a huge misconception about land, and that's that you can do nothing with it and it will grow in value. Um, if you had 100,000 whatever acres, it requires management of some sort not to become devalued. So if you're one of these institutional buyers of farmland, uh, you're going to hand off that management to a large entity that can manage however many thousands of acres you own. They're going to do that in a way that is certainly not sustainable and definitely not regenerative. So you're going to be devaluing the sort of intrinsic value of the land in the hope that the asset price of the broader market for land- Well, speculation in the hopes that you could flip it off to someone else. Speculate, yeah. But you're not, you're not- you're not putting any value into the land under that model. You have to be a steward of the soil. You have to be a steward. So you cannot just sit on land and hold it and expect it to go up in intrinsic value, potentially an asset value, but not an intrinsic value of the land. So put on your cold-eyed financier hat and your goggles. Where is the arbitrage here? If something, if 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 what Erica and her ilk, especially with the boom in organic food and, and you would think hyper-locally sourced foods, you would think banks would be lining up to kind of bridge that that gap. There is a tremendous uh, difficulty in procuring that land, putting the fence up, uh, putting in drainage, dealing with conservation easements and everything else just to get the stuff to market, refrigeration, uh, capital equipment, capital expenditures that you need. Um, assuming by the time you do make it to the farmer's market, there's going to be demand and it's not going to be a rainy day. So many things can go wrong. I mean, you, you capture, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's not as straightforward as a mixed-use development with retail below and apartments above. It's more complicated than that. And I think one of the reasons why more people haven't tuned in and why I think there is such a great arbitrage opportunity right now is because right now the gap is big. Right now the gap between a pound of supermarket ground beef and what Erica sells at the farmer's market is pretty wide. And we've maybe bought a few more years of that through various innovations or trade deals or what have you. But there's going to come a time when that gap starts to close. Uh, and when it starts to close, the people doing things in a more sustainable, regenerative way, that's when all of those sort of big institutions you're looking at are going to start looking out the corner of their eye. So talk to me about this. Let's take a hypothetical example. Uh, uh, an aspiring couple, well-intentioned couple, sees a parcel of land in Stanton or something, wants to come in. They can't afford the capital up front. You know, M&T or someone's not going to give them the loan to do it. There's no immediate cash flow out of it, so they'd have to mortgage something else. Where do you come in? So, yeah, so right now, and in, in like a lot of things with local food, if, if we figure it out, we'll be the people that, that figured it out. All of our support uh, for local food sort of as a community here but everywhere has been largely consumption-based. How many kale salads can you eat essentially is your only manner of supporting local food. Um, it occurred to us that there's a lot of people, a lot of people with investable assets um, that would like to support local food but that can't do it uh, solely through consumption alone. You know, I, I got involved in this six years ago. 
I'm just now getting to a point where at home I can cook comfortably with all local <laughs> ingredients. If, if I pull someone out of the crowd at Elwood's and sort of preach this message, it's not like they're going to go home and start making chicken stock on their own. But they're, they want to support it. So right now what we're doing is we're set up as a nonprofit entity that raises funds with the purpose of loaning those funds out uh, in sort of a revolving loan fund for projects like Erica's or uh, for hopefully one day scaling up to be able to do those type land deals and mortgage deals in a more equitable, transparent, and nimble way than a large financial institution are and without checking the exact same boxes that maybe an investor what would. What is the pitch you're making, though, to someone? This is this is surely – it's a great feel-good idiosyncratic asset. I imagine it doesn't correlate with the S&P or treasuries or emerging markets. Sounds great. Keep your money locally. You coined this term. It just sounds beautiful. Food shed. I'm thinking watershed, which is one of my favorite words. I'm, you know, I use it wrongly all the time. So suppose you're coming to me and you need to raise you know, a $100,000 fund. How would you make that pitch to me? I think the sort of, as you said, the the cold-eyed financed pitch is I believe in sort of the data we're gathering now suggests that these can be very stable 2 to 4% returns. And there's a lot of investable assets now that people have their portfolios in that generate 2 to 4% returns that they have no emotional connection to whatsoever, um, that they can't see or touch or feel in their local communities. So what we're asking people to do is take a look at sort of your investment landscape and say, is there some small portion that I can carve out for this that uh, I want to see a more tangible benefit in my community for without sacrificing uh, you know, loss of principle? We call it kind of patient capital. Wait for it. I should patent seat investor on this. Doesn't that sound <laughs> great? Are they angel investors? Are they people that are stepping up? Are they doing it out of the goodness of their heart and not really, look, a bank's not going to pay me more than uh, 1.5% right now. Why don't I just, you know, do it and help these farmers out and go to bed at night a little bit more easily. You know, a, a, another way of looking at it is almost all of the people that we're raising money from, whether it be community foundations or family foundations, uh, they have a philanthropic bucket and they have their investment bucket. Well, on their philanthropic bucket, a grant has a 100% chance of going to zero, so to speak. Um, we're having this loan fund and sure, there'll be a loss rate on it. But let's say it's 20%. Let's say it's as high as 20%. We're asking people to think of it as philanthropy with an 80% return instead of investments with a 20% loss. Um, and I still think these are kind of, to, to put it in your language, kind of like buying penny stocks. You know, We're doing a small loan to Erica for equipment that is going to significantly change sort of the labor dynamics on their farm. Who knows what they'll do with that added efficiency or productivity? You know, there was an investor uh, used to run the Export-Import Bank under the Clinton administration, James Harmon. We've had him on the show before. And when he was in the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton urged him to go and see Africa. And the first place he went to was Ghana. Um, he had never been anywhere. He was the chairman, I believe, of Schroeder's Bank. He was a Wall Street veteran. And a fishing village in Accra, a bunch of women complained about spoilage on their catch, that they could spend a lot more time at sea if they didn't have to worry about rushing the fish to market. And he mentioned somebody had mentioned that they could really use a micro loan for something like three hundred and fifty dollars to buy these used refrigerators off these restaurants that were kind of scrapping them anyway. And he just figured, oh, I'd never see the money. I did it personally for a couple hundred bucks. And they immediately paid him back and they wanted a bigger loan. And that light bulb went off top of his head like I could really do good and do well. If I help with capital formation with an enterprise that's this small, 
They're feeling great. They're going out. They could spend much more time. I could really scale the business. Does that light bulb go off for you as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny sometimes when we look at the cost of something that we we've just been kind of, you know, gritting our teeth over, like, should we get it? Should we not? You know, it's in the one great example is we've been him and Han about these rollout nest boxes for the last few years. You know, what's the approximate cost? We're looking at like $4,000. Like most investors would look at that and be like, yeah, sure. Great. Do it. Of course. But, you know, if you're not quite sure it's going to work and, you know, cash flow is always kind of an issue, um, you know, and it's it's kind of a gamble. It's hard to pull that trigger. And so, you know, having access to just a little bit of extra capital um, for us to pull that trigger, you know, makes it less of a gamble, makes it a little bit, uh, it gives us more confidence. And I, you know, we've kind of already done the math. We know how much time that will save us in a week. And frankly, I don't know how I'm going to spend that time. Um, maybe emailing more chefs or um, sending them emojis. We don't know. So when um, did you first take financing when you went off and, and started this farmer? How did you how did you set up the money to do it? Uh, when did we first? Mm. We didn't really. I had a small amount of money, very small amount of money from when my grandmother died, and I just kind of threw it all at the farm. Um, I think it was like $5,000. Um, to buy what? To buy land? To, to buy, buy uh, portable electrified uh, poultry net fences, um, to buy polywire, to buy energizers, uh, to um, buy chicks and to, to buy, you know, the first batch of feed we needed to feed them. Uh, we got a long-term no-interest loan for about six cows uh, to start a small herd. From who? Uh, from a neighbor, someone who knew my partner's family, had known him for a long time since he was young, and he just had cows and wanted to retire and didn't really want the cows anymore, so he just gave them to us. Um, and he was like, pay me back in beef, pay me back in dollars, wow. you know, it'll come out in the wash. And that was a more philanthropic bent. But, you know, we made regular payments to him whenever we could. Uh, we paid him back and we grew the herd really slowly. Um, we were kind of reluctant to take on any large financing, but more importantly, we were unable to uh, gain access to a lot of financing because we didn't have any collateral at all. And, you know, once again, we have this sort of risky business model. They're looking at these young farmers being like, why would I give you a loan? How, what are you going to do to prove that you can pay it back? And we didn't really have anything to show for it. So in a way, we were sort of forced to grow slowly um, within the first three or four years. Did you guys pay yourself anything but food? No, <laughs> not at the beginning, no. Um, but that's a great way to, I mean, you know, we see what people pay with us at Farmer's Market. And the fact that we just have a walk-in full of that meat to access feels pretty luxurious when you're getting started. Um, we're, we're a more profitable model than that now. Um, but, you know, a few years in, we were able to deal with a local bank who uh, we got a, a line of credit um, just sort of revolving. We renew it each year. Why and did they see that cash flow was picking up, that you were building enough of mm -hmm. a momentum and selling to restaurants and other operations? Absolutely. We'd gotten a little bit of street cred around town. People knew about us. Um, the gal that uh, actually helped us get the loan had heard of us and bought our stuff at Farmer's Market, knew another couple friends of ours who were also uh, small entrepreneurs. They make a hard cider um, in Virginia. And, you know, she kind of took a gamble. She stuck her neck out for us and um, was like had to, you know, discuss it with her underwriters to to make a case for us. Would you have ever let a restaurant take equity in you or an investor take equity and say, listen, I'm going to, for our listeners out there that I'm going to buy, you know, 15, 20% of this, put an infusion in, but I'm going to own a percentage of the profits and whatever sale happens in the future? I don't think so. I mean, we never felt like 
the, we weren't really totally sure that the farm was going to be profitable at the beginning. It was a little bit of a gamble on our part. And so the idea of having to pay ourselves and pay someone else back on top of that was pretty daunting. And, you know, we've had a lot of offers for people who do want to invest and have some ownership stake. But um, it just, you know, on a very sort of prideful level, it wasn't about that for us. We wanted to make sure that we could build something that had legs. Farmer and- Erica, maybe, and, and, and no offense or anything, maybe it's the Persian emperor in me. <laughs> but if I'm running a thing like that and somebody offers me maybe $50,000, like I can totally scale up. I could buy this, you know, cotton gin. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. I could buy this new John Deere thing. I could think about... Um, you know, and in a great way, not in a not in a nefarious way of growing my farming empire, but I could totally free up to do other things. And um, I wouldn't know how to resist that siren call for a person coming in there and offering me a fat check to build something really to kind of scale it up at a hockey stick moment. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that kept us from that was just complete debt aversion. And I don't know where that comes from. And I think also just the sort of enduring willingness to continue to work. Like the idea of just having a lot of leisure time isn't what it was about for us. I mean, we enjoy the work and it has meaning and value for us. So, you know, we wanted to be part of it every day. We didn't want to just get all the stuff we need and then let someone else do it. Um, My partner and I are still very involved in production every day um, and we do all the marketing and direct sales ourselves. So the idea of, you know, and the, the fear that would set in of, having this giant debt burden and really not being 100% sure we could pay it back was never something we wanted to get into. Um, And I think that was a good thing. And now that we've been around longer, you know, when people approach us, um, like Hunter at Slow Money, you know, we say, yeah, we we actually feel like we can pay this back and we can really put it to good use. Were your ancestors Steinbeckian Okies? (laughs) I don't know, but John Steinbeck is my favorite author. So Were they Okies? Uh, I'm trying to think of people kind of fleeing the Dust Bowl and going Mm -hmm. out west. Yeah, my mom's uh, favorite slogan is waste not, want not, which I found just insufferable as I was growing up. But it just sticks with you. I I love how the grapes of wrath just still pervades mm -hmm. your blood. It's in there, yeah. I had to write that. It was just so perfect. (laughs) Uh, Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to farmer Erica Helen. She's co-founder of Free Union Grass Farm outside of Charlottesville. She is joined in studio by micro lender extraordinaire Hunter Hopcroft. Uh, special project manager at Elwoods. He's co-founder of Slow Money Central VA, uh, also snagging his MBA at UVA. Sir, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, uh, tell us about where this is headed. I mean, you're one example, you're one swath of Central VA, but I'm thinking, and maybe it's the coastal elite, listen to me calling myself a coastal elite. I live in (laughs) Richmond, darn it. Uh, But maybe it's just me saying that the, the market for organic and thoughtfully raised Livestock and, and and crops is booming. There's going to have to be a tail that wags a dog and, and banks coming and backing this. And somebody is going to have to bridge this arbitrage that you're occupying. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked about, well, would you ever entertain an equity investor for someone like, like Erica? Or I think you have to have an understanding that the biggest asset is the farmer's knowledge, experience, attitude, that that's really what you're investing in, and that's not something that you're ever going to have a liquidity event for. Um, and so we're trying to find a model that can honor that um, and provide something to people on the capital side that is compelling, um, both from a financial and an emotional standpoint. Right now, it, it's to prove that even though these types of loans might not pass the rigor 
of even a community bank's underwriter that they will perform and that they will have a positive economic benefit both to the farm and the community where the farm business is in. Um, where that scales up to is, is this a bigger carve-out? Is this a SBA-type institution? Is this a CDFI or something that Treasury feels like is valuable or even the USDA? I think right now it's just sort of more about proving that these are loans and investments that can perform uh, for the investors and for the communities that they're in. So I imagine some of the investors that stick around year in, year out, they're like, all right, this is great. I mean, my my hurdle is the the kind of the sterile one and a half, two percent I'd be earning on a treasury or something else. And this feels a lot better than just getting that kind of miscellaneous return. Are they then upping the ante to you and saying, Hunter, go back and find me an equity opportunity or let's come up with a more, and this is where I'm going to walk out with you again, a more preferred thing with equity type up, upside and kind of, tantalizes that kind of that exotic PIMCO finance here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, so we have, for Slow Money Central Virginia, we have two programs. One is very philanthropically based. We raise donations and then give out zero or very low percent interest loans. And this is for any requests we get that's essentially under $20,000, really under $10,000. But then if a farm comes to us and says something ambitious, I want to buy two refrigerated trucks and begin distribution. I want to open, uh, you know, a processing facility of some sort. We hope that through sort of our fundraising and networking, we've built a network of like-minded investors that we can help sort of be a gatekeeper to and take these opportunities to them where there might be something a little bit more uh, financially tantalizing there. And that's where it gets really interesting with all sorts of sort of innovative structures that we're seeing around the c- country of whether it be equipment leases or mortgaging back farmland to farmers or you know real estate investment trusts that are beginning to pop up that are doing this more impact oriented work on a little little bit larger scale again just like with the local food system on the production side uh, imitating all the ills of the sort of modern banking system are not our goal. It's really about finding a innovative new way of making sure that this blind spot in capital creation doesn't remain a blind spot for people. Mm. How many years since you started the farm, Erica? We're going into our 10th season. And uh, reflect back on what you started with, the the perceptions that you had and what you've learned since, kind of the learning curve of it. Um, I think, you know, we always wanted to be small, uh, but thoughtfully small. Um, I think... You know, as we started out, I think if you asked us what our biggest limitation was, we would have said maybe like lack of capital or, you know, lack of cash flow. But I think now that's been a real education because it sort of required us to make really calculated decisions and sort of put us in a position now where we see that, you know, accessing financing, you know, since we have some legs to stand on can be really beneficial for us. So, you know, we've come a long way. We know that we're good producers. We know we have a good product that we'll sell, that we'll we'll sell out of repeatedly. Um, You know, now we just feel like we know what we're doing and we have the confidence to grow, um, literally and metaphorically. How, How have you increased the yield of the land? Like, for example, have you looked into planting certain things? Have you found that Oh, God, I'm thinking out loud. My soil lends itself to 
my pigs rooting for, I don't know, truffles? <laughs> um, not exactly. There are a few sort of niche cottage industry things we've dabbled with. Um, I think for us, yeah, one example is we're starting to do uh, Christmas geese. We're doing a French Toulouse geese, which are just a riot. You should come see them. Um, but for us, it's more about using each year of growth to do the things we're doing significantly better. Um, so we don't do crop production, but what we do want to do is, you know, every year make you know, our pasture management a little bit more efficient, a little bit less time consuming, get water where we need it, put in systems that we know will cut down time, cut down stress on both animals and farmers. Um, just do what we're doing, but do it better. How many people do you employ on the farm? Uh, we've got uh, myself and my partner are full-time. We've got uh, a kind of farmhand manager who's full-time and then uh, two other yeah, we're all full-time. There's five of us full-time. We're kind of part-time in the winter. but um, And then we hire some part-time folks on slaughter days throughout the season. So that's eight. Do you feel the need to hire more people? Not at the moment. I feel like in certain ways, on you know, there's an ebb and flow to farming. Maybe it's like that with other industries. Um, some days we're really overstaffed. Some days we're all completely engaged and we have no idea how we'll get it all done. Um, but we like that about it. And I wanted to ask you about humanely slaughtering animals. I know Temple Grandin's coming to town later this year. Oh, right. Uh, how is that, I mean, in your experience, how is that best done? You see the big players in these horror store videos that come out, but they say in the end you're using a captive bolt gun mm. or you're, yeah, I don't know, I mean, are you shocking the chicken? Are you using carbon dioxide? What are some of the best practices? I know it's not pleasant to talk about, but it's your reality. Oh, I don't have a problem with it. I've been doing it for a long time, so it's pretty normalized for me um, That I, in a way that I still respect. But I think the key to humane slaughter is efficiency and having the infrastructure that you need. Um, so I think when people have a negative experience with slaughter, it's often because they're thinking back to like their grandmother clobbering a chicken with some sort of blunt object and just sort of hoping it dies. Um, that's not what we do. You know, chickens go upside down in a kill cone. You cut their neck, you know, on either side. Uh, you do it quickly and efficiently. Um, you keep things very clean. Um, I think that's the best we can do. And, you know, sort of the larger an animal is, the harder it is to kill. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think efficiency and cleanliness go along. To what way. extent have restaurants and shops been pushing back on kind of, uh, you know, humane slaughtering practices on this? Have been upping the bar for it? Uh, not in a significant way, the, at least the restaurants that we work with, because a lot of those folks, chefs, are bringing themselves, uh, bringing their wait staff, bringing their, you know, purveyors that, you know, that are working at the counter, people are coming out and seeing it with their own eyes. And once people have witnessed it, it feels a little closer to home, a little more familiar. Um, you know, it's just like anything else. The more educated you are about something, you know, the, the better it can be. Um, this is another one of those sort of industrial food system uh, shell games that I think is really interesting. There's been such a host of regulations and revisions of about how an animal is slaughtered and almost none about how it lives up to that point. Mm -hmm. And that's really the difference maker. Um, the industrial food system would rather keep the focus on humanely slaughtering because that appeals to their need for efficiency, where giving the animals enough space to live full lives is not. And I've read lately that the Trump administration is actually pushing to uh, ease up on slaughtering rules, that the number of animals that you could max slaughter in an hour. And we run into... Uh, health concerns. I mean, if, if it doesn't give time to kind of amply clean up the environment or inspect it for maybe a pierced uh, bladder or something else. It's an incredibly dangerous environment for the slaughterhouse workers as well when you up line speeds. 
Absolutely. Close us out, Hunter. Tell me what we can expect from this. Tell me what the best predictions are. You know, if we have you back in 10 years to talk about this, where is your operation in Slow Money VA going to be? You know, I think right now there's a huge, if you just want to talk about the biggest challenge, I think the biggest challenge is that consumers are not actually engaged with the work that farmers do. Uh, there's a very little understanding of what Erica's Monday through Friday actually looks like. And we have sort of this fetishization of farming through the pages of Modern Farmer, Garden Gun. But I think as consumers get more acquainted with the real work of farming, there's going to be a real desire to support it uh, once they understand sort of what an important kind of economic force it can be, especially for rural communities, but really for anywhere that there are eaters, there should be an agricultural economy as part of that. Erica, last word. Farmer Erica? I do want to say anywhere that there are eaters is everywhere. Everyone is an eater, and we all do it every day, um, ideally three times. Um, So the idea that you can be removed from this is pretty naive. This is something we're all very intimately involved with. And I think, you know, working with organizations like Hunters helps, you know, get people more connected to it. Erica, where is your empire going to be in 10 years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Now that we're at the 10-year point of you starting this, in your perfect mind's eye, you know, kind of what makes you happy when you go to sleep at night? Where is this going to be? Well, I think that's the funny thing about this business is we've never had much of a five-year plan, let alone a 10-year one. Um, I think just continuing to do what we're doing, selling more at a retail level, producing, you know, gradually more, but getting more for the product that we sell so that we have to do less wholesaling. But just continuing to, you know, monitor our bottom line like any business would, but doing that without compromising our ethics, without compromising uh, the environment, our bodies, um, or the health and well-being of the animals. I mean, I, I want, right now, local food is kind of a shiny object. You walk into a restaurant, we have local beef, we have local this. I'd love for that to get to a point where that's the expectation, that's the norm, that if beef's on the menu, of course it came from a local farm. Where Why, why would it come from anywhere else? You know what makes me excited? coming up with this hyper-local Haas avocado that will grow anywhere in the world year-round. The <laughs> ultimate cash crop well, brought spe- to you spe- by of, Robin Farzad. Speaking of naivete, you know, I, I opened a local food market in Richmond, Virginia based on a model I saw in Southern California. Oh. <laughs> Repent, young man. Hunter, Hunter Hopcroft, a.k.a. Microcroft, <laughs> co-founder of Slow Money Central VA, a micro-lender to farms. And he was joined by farmer Erica Helen, co-founder of Free Union Grass Farms. I cannot thank you both enough. Thank you. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to this fine show on NPR member station WCVE, on NPR.org, and on the NPR app. Of course, we are on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are regenerators of quality audio, rotating weekly till the cows come home. Look, sort the wheat from the chaff. Reap what you sow. Just don't dare put this show out to pasture, okay? I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Thank you.